Hey folks, you're listening to How to Win a Campaign, where you'll get an insider's perspective that teaches you not only how to win campaigns, but also how to build movements. I'm Martin Diego Garcia. And I'm Joe Fold. And you can find us at the Campaign Workshop on Instagram and Threads. Welcome and thanks for listening to this episode of How to Win a Campaign, Season 4. On last episode, we got to talk to a dear friend of mine, Greg Sendena, about creating a career out of movement building. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, make sure you go check it out. Well, Martine, we've got a great episode for folks today. We'll be discussing grassroots movement building and how to get more people involved in a grassroots campaign and how to prevent advocates from burning out. So Martine, let's start with the grassroots movement. What is it and why is it important? Absolutely. I think many movements are really grounded in grassroots advocacy, right? And it really just means it's a sort of bottom-up movement, right? It's not coming from sort of top-down leaders or elected officials, but really focused on amplifying the voices of those impacted by a particular issue or concern. And it can be really effective because people get involved because they have a personal stake in the issue. So if we were going to give some sort of general definition for it, right, it's really just the process of building power by involving a particular constituency of individuals when you identify a problem that they share and a solution to that problem. They then identify a target that could potentially help solve or fix that problem, and you engage some tactics utilizing that group to move that particular target. Now, don't get this confused with grass tops advocacy, because on the other hand, grass tops advocacy could be more around coalition building, organized leadership, elected officials, people who already sit in a position of power, who are then leading folks into advocacy work or direct action. This really does come directly from the community when we're talking about grassroots advocacy. And in this conversation today, we're able to talk a bit about both, right? Grassroots, and then we also talk a bit more about grass tops. But what's cool is that, one, they work well with each other, but also grassroots is just plain hard to ignore. We really believe that when you mobilize people in a community around an issue and you do it in a long-term engaging way, that you get results. It takes time, it takes planning, it takes strategy, but it's hard for people to ignore it if you really have an organized grassroots movement in place. It makes people acknowledge what is going on. And also these days, it shows people that what you care about is important. And building that relationship and showing people not that there's just an issue, but it's an important issue is something that elected officials need to know. It's also one of the sort of main pillars of how we build power, right? So we have grassroots organizing. You have then elections, which are a sort of different lever that we can pull. And then ultimately, you have governing and public policy. And so it, it is one of the sort of core ways in which we can organize folks to build power and hopefully create some change. And I think that's why we really see a lot of grassroots movements so often, because all it really takes is a group of people or sometimes even just an individual who feels strongly about how they're being impacted by the same issue and are willing to voice their opinion and speak up and take some action, right? It can be a single moment that becomes a movement, right? We have Stonewall riots, we have the civil rights movements, we have the women's movements, the Me Too movement. There are a lot of movements that sort of took off because a lot of folks were able to sort of see themselves reflected in it and were wanting and willing to take action. It takes time, right? It's a brick by brick 
day-by-day action that is a group of people doing it. Again, one of the definitions we like to think of grassroots, it's not a single plant. It's multiple seeds, right? So it is not being done alone. And it is the idea of sort of building this structure with the rocks around your feet, with the people in your community to build that structure. So you really want to think about if you care about an issue, if you want to build something and you want to do clearly grassroots activism, think about who are other people that are affected, impacted by this issue, get them together and know that you may be starting with a group of people, but for it to be successful, you have to grow it and think about not the coalition that you start with, but the coalition you want to end up with to expand that table and really think about who is there and who should be there? Because sometimes those are two very different things, right? So we always think about how can you make coalition and grassroots work be even more inclusive? It's really thinking about who's missing from the table and making sure you're getting them involved from the beginning. And to me, what I love about grassroots is that it makes What used to be, I think, sort of closed door conversations with elected officials, really much more public facing campaigns. It makes the campaign be about the public and about the people that you're trying to serve and engage. And that takes time. It takes coordination. It takes engagement. But it also, that's where you'll see the growth. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a great point because when you think about the more recent movements, right, you think about Black Lives Matter, you think about Standing Rock, right, you think about Me Too, it was something that sparked a bunch of folks into action. However, if there was no sort of strategic organization that then came from those, we would have never had the the marches on Washington, the amount of people that showed up to Standing Rock, the amount of protests that happened across the country because of police brutality, right? And so I think there is this idea of when there is that sort of fire that starts and really gets people to take that action, that there does need to be some sort of organization and coordination around it, whether that's like you said, through calls, emails, rallies, events, social posts, etc., to really see the amount of progress and the amount of momentum that you're able to build to really maximize the efficiency and the effectiveness of the movement and really get heard. It's again, being able to show that importance and convey that importance to elected officials. The Brandon Graham conversation we have later on in the show is about the movement around mental health And so to me, that was something that people really weren't publicly talking about for years and years and years. And having those conversations, making them public, that can both increase engagement and also increase the urgency of the issue. And that is really powerful. So when we're thinking about building movements, we want to think about what's unique about it or what is connective about it, and how can you get other people to be a part of it or to acknowledge that they're already a part of it? And then what are the steps, which we talk about like both in the interview, but you talked about just a minute ago about like, what are the steps that volunteers can take to keep it moving? How do they get other people involved? What are 
tangible actions that we can be getting folks to do to keep things going. And that can be setting up meetings, that can be making calls, that can be asking a legislator to meet me at the McDonald's and have a cup of coffee, pick your favorite local coffee shop, doesn't have to be McDonald's, but you get the point, and really create that engagement. Yeah, I mean, so Joe, some of these, as you mentioned, right, take movements that have been going on for years, if not decades. How would you advise folks to sort of keep the urgency or keep the momentum when these are really small incremental steps that we're taking toward progress? What I'd say, first of all, is sometimes acknowledgement that the issue is important is just part of the momentum. So telling a story, collecting those stories, sharing that, going to events or asking questions at community forums around an issue, especially like next year, we're going to have tons and tons of candidate forums coming up. And so the idea of if there's an issue that you care about at a public forum asking a candidate what their stance is on that issue. What are they doing about that issue? doesn't have to mean that you have a piece of legislation that is moving today. It could mean that there's something coming up or that there are ongoing steps around this. But sharing that with the community, letting people know that this matters is very, very powerful. Martine, how about you? Any other pieces of advice on this that you have? Well, yeah, I mean, what you also want to think about, right, is is whether the movement has been happening for decades, right, or there have been sort of inflection points, you want to make sure that you're understanding and articulating what you're trying to achieve. Because very often these movements have all of a sudden a groundswell of a bunch of people who want to do something, but there's not a really clear direction to what it is they're actually trying to accomplish. And so once you do have that groundswell, you just want to make sure that you're really honing folks into, is this a policy change? Is this a sort of public opinion change? Is this a social awareness? We're getting everybody involved change. Is this an electoral politics change, right? So that you're really giving those folks, your friends, donors, sort of supporters, volunteers, the end goal. And then that way your movement becomes so much more successful and you're, you're able to build a so much more power and get more bang for your buck when you're utilizing these grassroots organizing all in the same direction. Totally makes sense. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back with our interview with Brandon Graham. Stay tuned. Brandon Graham has worked for the National Alliance on Mental Illness since 2017 and currently serves as the Director of Advocacy. NAMI is the nation's largest grassroots mental health organization and works on raising awareness, advancing public policy, and providing support in the mental health space. Graham has previously worked in the Democratic Governors Association and for Senator Chuck Schumer. Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So NAMI's origin story really speaks to the power of grassroots campaigning. Can you talk a little bit about how NAMI started and came to be what it is today? NAMI truly started from the grassroots. People in their communities coming together for mutual support and advocacy. NAMI was founded in Madison, Wisconsin, 1979, as a group made up primarily of parents, many of them mothers, of people with serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia. They were part of many different parent organizations around the country. They came together because the mental health system was bailing their loved ones. They want to find ways to support their family members, advocate for more research, better services, better public policy. So members of the most active family groups found that there should be a national coalition. And that's really how NAMI started. 
So the grassroots kept growing. Now, as they added a national organization, then came state organizations. And today, we have over 49 state organizations, including D.C., and over 600 affiliates in communities across the country. And it's a testament to what the power of lived experience and the power of just regular people wanting to get involved and make a difference can really do. That's great. So why did you join NAMI? That's a really good question. So I was working in the elected side, in the official side, and I was looking for a change, but I was really looking for two things. One, consistency. I think, as we all know, the campaign life can be one thing to the next. It's nice to have the ability to settle down, start a life in one place. And I also wanted a chance to make a difference on something. I think we can all argue working in political campaigns, working for elected officials, we can make a difference. But there's just something about focusing on an issue and really digging in that you can make such great big change. So I had seen NAMI before in some research documents I was doing in a past job, and I saw a job posting right as I was looking. I wasn't that familiar, but I started digging in. And ultimately, mental health is a very personal issue to me. Family, friends, colleagues, community at large, but also me. I'm someone who lives with anxiety and depression. I'm a suicide attempt survivor. So to get to work on these issues day in and day out and make a real difference, that's an honor and a privilege. And to get to work with similar people from our field leaders, some are professional staff, some are volunteers at the end of their day who are running a nonprofit. That's just inspiring every single day. Absolutely. We are really happy you're out there doing this work. It is one of those things that I will say in the business of politics, right? I have in my life worked with folks who have attempted and frankly worked with folks who are not with us anymore. And politics can be a very hard business. So I think we need more advocacy on this. And so anyway, really glad to be talking with you about this today. So in this season, we're talking about movement building and how do you use the grassroots as an organization to build a movement? Talk to us a little bit about how NAMI does that and how you work at NAMI to really build a movement of people around changing the stigma of mental health and mental illness and how you're doing this on a daily basis. Talk to us a little bit about that. That's a great question. So really at the heart of everything we do is the grassroots. It's in our logo. Right next to our letters, NAMI, is a grassroots logo. It's just central to what we do because at NAMI, we are the people affected by the policies and decisions. We have providers, we have professionals, we have community leaders, but ultimately we're the people with lived experience, the family members, the friends, those people in the community who are affected day in and day out. So it's their voices that ultimately create change. They're the ones who move the needle. We have a great government relations team at our national office, but policymakers want to hear from people in their community. We know that, we center that, we make sure that is how we change this conversation. So ultimately, we want to find every single way we can to engage advocates throughout our work. And ultimately, once they get engaged, 
they're sharing with others. They want to spread the word to their family members, to their friends, that tripling of that impact because they want to have that conversation with others that I took action. I acted for mental health. I got involved and now they're getting involved. And really those conversations that we have in the community, those conversations, those grassroots advocates are having directly with policymakers, that's shifting the conversation. We're building more champions. People are more open about their mental health, both on an individual level and on a policymaker level as we're seeing. So we're really seeing that needle move in a positive direction because we're directly engaging the grassroots to do so. One of the hard parts of being involved in causes and being involved in groups and organizations is that, you know, volunteers burn out, right? Sometimes it can be very hard to keep folks engaged. And especially on like a topic like mental health, it can be hard to keep people continually engaged. How do you keep the volunteers a part of it? And how do you keep them engaged and help prevent them from burning out? What do you do? I don't think there's a perfect formula here. And that's something we all want, right? We, we want to figure out what that e way we can just go make this process run as easy as possible. But some of it is just being aware, being aware that your advocates can burn out. They're not an endless source of letters to the hill. They are real people with real jobs and real things day in and day out, which is why we try to have a variety of different ways to engage throughout our advocacy work. It's not always, hey, here's an email from me in your inbox. Now I need you to make this phone call or send this letter. We'll try to do some lighter list building, ways to better identify what people truly care about. So we're not burning through every advocate every time to try to make a difference. I want to know, do you care most about research? Do you care particularly about making sure that people with mental illness are diverted from justice system involvement? Do you care about access to care or youth mental health? I want to know that. So when we have something that's moving, I can reach out to you because that is the issue you truly care about. Ultimately, we can do other fun things. You can do giveaways. Everyone loves a good free sticker to put on a water <laughs> bottle. At the crux of all of it is just being aware that there are people on the other side of the email you are sending. I think it's like take the time to actually write a good creative email and like have it not be the same thing you wrote. I think that can matter a lot. Putting some thought and care into the communications you're putting out in the world can really make a difference. It sounds like a small thing, but it can really matter. But then also that thing you talked about, the segmentation about talking to people about what they really care about and making sure the advocate is centered in that communication can really put them and make them be vested in that so that then they're turning around and saying, yes, I want to get involved. And here's this thing I want to do. The more you center them, I think, in that communication, that story, that engagement, the less there is a chance for burnout because then they're vested in a really thoughtful, engaging way. And again, you can always overcommit them. You can always do more. But if you're connecting with them, you're at least not going to lose that engagement. Right. And the whole point of this is building a sustainable movement. You don't want to just build something for the sake of building it. How do you make sure your advocate is reflected in the work you were doing? They see themselves as part of this. They're not just another tool to do this. They are a person who goes, 
I see myself, my loved one, my experiences centered in this, and I want to stay a part of this. I want to see where this goes. So first, do you have any tips for us on increasing engagement, on getting more people involved in a cause or a movement? Do you have ideas on that? I'd love to hear it. I'm sure our audience would love to hear it. Oh, that is a great question. So something that we've really seen is it may seem counterintuitive a little bit, but giving people multiple ways to get involved, even in the same email, not everyone is going to feel super motivated by that first ask or that priority you're pushing at that time. But hey, I may not want to take action on that, but I'll share my story on this particular issue that you gave me as a secondary action here. So I'm going to click, I'm going to open that email, I'm going to get involved, and I'm going to keep staying active. So finding those different ways. And ultimately, my personal motto is not being afraid of trying new things. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes adding new fields on your registration form isn't going to shape out the way you want it. Sometimes you end up getting much better information on your advocates to do that segmenting that we talked about. And that is all great as long as you stay true to you. Something that is very important to us as we craft those different emails, as we think about our calls to action. What is our voice? What is NAMI's voice? What is central to NAMI's ability to engage and to activate on this issue? We're not getting involved in everything just for the sake of it. Mental health touches far too many issues for us to do that. But what is our authentic heart at the center of our advocacy work? You can try all the new things you want, but if you're avoiding or pushing down that authenticity that made your movement successful to begin with, that's just not going to help turn out those advocates. Yeah. I will also tell you that sometimes I think we don't look for the advocates that are right in front of us. Sometimes we ignore the donors and don't ask the donors or the lapsed donor that might have given at an event that was specific for someone, but we never asked them to be an advocate. I think those advocates that are right in front of us, sometimes we miss. And then those friends, those family, those extended asks to me are also advocacy gold to get more people involved. Definitely. And also, it's something that I feel is overlooked a lot, especially in the nonprofit advocacy space, is nonpartisan elections engagement, because that's one of those things where it may be election season. You may not be able to drive letters or phone calls to an elected official, but you can make sure you are engaging your advocates so they know the basics of, are you registered to vote? Where is your polling place? Do you have a plan to vote? Something that NAMI has, we have our Vote for Mental Health campaign, which we are a nonpartisan 501c3. I will never tell anyone, NAMI will never tell anyone who to vote for or who to support. But I want every person out there to know that the people we elect are going to make decisions that impact the mental health care in our community. Being aware that mental health touches on all of the top issues that voters repeatedly tell pollsters are the reasons why they are most interested in voting, that that intersects with mental health. And because we do this elections engagement campaign, we make sure that people are aware of their ability to vote and just the basic information of who's on their ballot or where their polling place is. We have that additional touch point and a new way to get people engaged and stay engaged in the civic process.
Yeah. No, it's great. I mean, again, I think those layers are super important that someone has done a bunch of advocacy work, but just doing general voter engagement, right? Get out and vote. Mental health is really important. So talk to me about what you think the future of the mental health movement is. That is a fantastic question. <laughs> I got a lot of fantastic questions. <laughs> so many good questions trying to stump me. So the mental health movement is always been an arc and a process, right? Think back to what I was sharing about NAMI's founding. It was parents sitting around the table going, we need something different. And it started shifting. Eventually, we got mental health parity at the concept that mental health should be treated equally to physical health and insurance coverage. We started seeing that the Affordable Care Act came. People weren't getting denied anymore just for solely having a mental health condition. And we see the shift more in the openness, the destigmatizing of mental health. And the more people talk about it, the more people are open about their mental health. I think we're only going to see greater policy change. We're going to see people realize that we need a non-law enforcement response to mental health crises because people should get help, not handcuffs. We're seeing more politicians talk openly about screening, about making sure our youth who are experiencing a ongoing mental health crisis get care early and appropriately, that we have more culturally competent care. And all these things are going to happen because advocates are reaching out and just talking about it. This happened to me. This is my experience. And I need you to hear the direct impact of all of this on me and our community and your constituents. And as that happens, more people are going to get involved and we're going to see that needle continue to move in a great direction. And when it moves in that direction, it's not just policy changing. Those are lives saved. Those are people, our loved ones, our friends who are here with us because they're able to get the help they needed. And that's worth fighting for every single day. And so as those issues come up, how do you as an organization shift, right? Because you just now talked about, I think, five different ways that you could cover mental health, right? Criminal justice, traditional health care. There's lots of different ways that you talk about it. So how does an organization like yours then move through those issues? Maybe it can be, but it's kind of hard to make every single one of those a priority. Right. So at NAMI, we have a few priorities that we're looking at this year that are centered really around our strategic plan, which are people get help early, people get the best possible care, and people get diverted from justice system involvement. Especially in that last part, think there are 2 million times a year someone with mental illness is booked into our nation's jails and prisons. Most of that time, it's because of the symptoms that they are experiencing. That's not how people should get healthcare. <laughs> Our jails and prisons have turned into a de facto mental health system. So how do we make sure we are getting people that care early, that they are getting access to that care? So we want policies that are going to build up a crisis response system that is focused on getting people that help they need. Just last summer, 
988, the new three-digit number for mental health, substance use, and suicide crises, went live nationwide. It's helped countless more people. It took the 10-digit number, made it three, easier to remember. But as more people know about that, we need additional supports and resources around it. If you call 988, you can get connected to a mental health crisis counselor anytime, anywhere. Call or text, online chat, 988lifeline.org. That's going to get you help. But if you need an in-person response, we need mobile crisis teams with mental health professionals and healthcare professionals who can respond. We need all of these additional services. That means we're building up our workforce. That means we're covering healthcare. That means we're covering these services. So it's all just ties together under we need to get people this care. And where is NAMI's unique voice in doing so? Yeah. And what I think that also does by having those pillars that you're working with, there's also lots of opportunity for growth as an organization, more advocates, and frankly, more coalition partners too. So one other question is like, then how do you work in coalition with other folks on these issues? So the mental health space is a very cohesive and collaborative place, which is great. We're moving a lot of policy priorities across the board. That means you have people like the APAs and the guilds who are advocating on a lot of those very specific workforce issues that are going to impact providers in the mental health space. You have organizations of lived experience like ours who are making sure that we're lifting up the voices from grassroots advocates and just people in our communities. And we can find that partnership on a lot of these different issues, like 988 and our crisis response. NAMI launched in November 2021 the Reimagine Crisis campaign. It's an advocacy campaign that we have brought together to urge policymakers to have an alternative response that treats people in crisis with dignity and respect that they deserve. And that's not just the mental health space, though, right? Mental health crisis reaches across a whole plethora of areas and professions. We have law enforcement. We have pediatricians, the Children's Hospital Association. We have so many great partners, up to over 50 now, working together because mental health crises touch all of these areas. And we can continue to lift up this voice because we have so many different voices in the room. And that's not just grassroots advocates that are professionals. Those are other organizations and their government affairs teams who are all saying, this is what we are seeing. And when you hear, we need a better response to mental health crises from a person in the community, a pediatrician, a law enforcement officer, and so on directly, that's being influenced from a lot of different areas if you're a policymaker. And we're starting to see that change. We saw record investment in the Lifeline and Associated Crisis Services at the end of year appropriations federally last year. And we're going to continue to advocate to make sure people get the help they need. That's amazing. That's great. So switching back to you, Talk to us about how in a job like this, you prioritize your own mental health. Because we have a lot of folks who listen to the podcast who are practitioners in the work, and sometimes that can be really hard. 
it can be really hard. And ultimately, I want to say I have this perfect set of tips and tricks that I have harnessed over these years. But ultimately, it's a work in progress. Some days are good. Some days are a smooth day. Some days can be more challenging, especially with the unfortunate tragedies that happen across the country. We spend a lot of time responding. We want to raise awareness and we want people to get the help and support they need. So some days can be more tough than others. For me personally, I try to build in some time for myself. Like many practitioners in the space, I am very type A. So I am a list and a calendars person. So for me, trying to even build some habits of stepping away into my to-do list, into my calendars where, all right, I'm going to read for 20 minutes. This is just a me time. Slack is going on mute. I need this break. It's also just good to find what works for you. For me, I'm big into running. I love going outside in the DC area, especially on a sunny day, running along some trails, running on the mall. Just being away, muting my phone, having that time for me and to process different things. But ultimately, people should try different things that will work for them and help them, whether that's journaling, making sure you make a priority for sleep or healthy eating, or just honestly finding a professional if you need that help. People aren't alone and it can sometimes feel overwhelming and it can feel tough, but finding a mental health professional, or if you're in a crisis, contacting 988 or a loved one and just connecting. These are all helpful steps we can all take and just being there for each other in the space. Like you said, it's tough sometimes. We just need yeah. to be there for each other. Absolutely. I try and do the like walk in the morning, the walk in the evening. I try and dedicate some time to reading. We as a company do a twice a month meditation, which is something that I think more companies and organizations should do. It actually forces us to like take some time in the middle of a really crazy busy work week to actually do some centered reflection. Those are the, the nights I get the best sleep or the days I've meditated. And I also agree on the like, you know, finding a professional when you need one. It is, it is super important. All right. So last question. Do you have any books, podcasts, things you would recommend for our listeners, whether it's on movement building or just things that are special to you? Any tips for our listeners on that? So I'm going to stick in the mental health space real quickly. So Nami has a book. You are not alone. It's available at major booksellers. It's written by our chief medical officer, Dr. Ken Duckworth. It includes stories from over 130 people who have been there, right? People with mental illness, caregivers. It's all about understanding how challenging it can be to find the help you need when you need it and just how people have navigated and best find tips and tricks for getting support. So I highly recommend You Are Not Alone. Uh, again, available at major booksellers. If you are looking for something to watch, PBS actually released last year, Ken Burns Presents Hiding in Plain Sight. It explores the youth mental health crisis and it's featuring stories directly from young people around the country and their experiences. So content warning, of course, but it's a very, very powerful watch. One last personal recommendation. Please. I can't even by Anne Helen Peterson. We were talking about how to protect ourselves, right? But there has always been a rise in just burnout. So how some folks can, can navigate different pieces there or how 
systems can can adjust. That is a personal recommendation there. Amazing. Well, listen, thank you so much, Brandon. Really appreciate your time. If folks want to get a hold of you, how can they reach out? That's great. So NAMI.org, if you need resources, support, you're looking for questions or mental health statistics, please come reach out to NAMI.org. We are also on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram, NAMI and NAMI Communicate. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to, to reach out. We have a great team. So I want to make sure I, I share our team's resources because it's not just me. We've got several folks who, who are great in the space and may be able to help answer questions. So mhpolicy at nami.org. Email with any questions and mention where you're coming from. Great. Thanks so much. And Brandon, we really appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And we're back. Well, I mean, Brandon really does have a great grasp on how to think about and activate your grassroots community. Joe, what do you think some of the main takeaways were that you want to call out? Well, first, he really talked about getting people involved and how to engage folks. And again, one of the things that I always want to say is if you don't want people involved, don't ask them to get involved. If you do, then you have to let them run with it and make their story a part of it. You have to bring them into the movement and give them space to help and engage and to build. And that to me is really important. The other thing that he talked about was making sure that if you're getting people involved in an issue that they really care about, that burnout's a possibility. So you also have to get them ready that this may take a while. Whatever issue you're working on, what your goals are, may take a bit of time and trying to pace people to say, hey, this may be years for us to make the change we want. And doing basic things like thanking them, giving them space, getting other people involved, making sure that they're not just like working alone, but being part of a team and feel like they're connected to a movement, not just doing something alone on it, which to me is really important. And then, you know, making sure you're giving them choices on how they want to be involved. There are different things that they may feel comfortable doing or not doing. There may be things that they have expertise in or that they want to try to do something new. Make sure you're giving them that voice and those options to be a part of the team. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think to getting folks involved, right? You you want to really just meet them where they are, right? And figure out where are the folks that I want to get involved? Are they at the farmer's market? Are they at the library? Are they at parents' meetings? Where are they? And how do you sort of meet them where they are and then give them those opportunities? I think on the piece around burnout, I think we now get to decide what the culture is, right? I think there's been a historic idea of when folks are involved in politics, it's like this automatic default to burnout culture. <laughs> and we don't have to do that anymore, right? And I think figuring out ways for you to create a work culture or a space for your volunteers that you're building in that time for rest and you're building in that time for them to sort of take care of themselves physically, mentally, emotionally, I think is really important. I think some of the other things that I, I found really interesting, right, is is the reminder again that there are so many important and challenging issues that are impacting many communities across the country and figuring out how do you prioritize and have some key goals that you're focused on to really show that momentum so that one, you're not burning out your folks, but that you're building momentum and you're building progress, right? And 
because there are so many issues that are vying for the same attention of these volunteers, of these voters, et cetera, how are you really trying to prioritize your issue, but also connect with the folks that are most impacted by it? This is something that we're seeing on a whole host of issues is that people almost feel like they're competing with each other on great issues, but on importance to get something done in a community because there's a limited amount of time and space. And so it's really, I think, making sure you're having those conversations with other advocates to talk about priorities and not feel like you're competing, but frankly, that you're working together. Yeah, which is why this sort of collaboration, which Brandon mentioned, is going to be really key, right? To be able to bring in those different perspectives and understand how all of these issues are sort of intertwined and interconnected, that just because somebody's working on housing doesn't mean they're not interested in environmental policy. They go together and you sort of have to figure out how to connect the dots and work with those folks that you're, we're lifting all boats, right, together, and we're not vying or competing against one another. Absolutely, right? And that's a perfect example if it's housing and environment, making sure that you're building more local community housing in an area versus having people drive an hour out to the suburbs is an environmental issue. And like, how do you tie that together and see that intersectionality is really powerful. I think Brandon also talked a little bit about self-care, the importance of mental health and awareness. I think it's critically important, especially in the political space. And it's something we haven't spent enough time, I think, talking about and giving ourselves sort of the space to take that time. Other things you want to talk about on that, Martine? Well, and I think depending on the issues that you're working on, right, if you're working in the gun violence prevention space, like that already comes with a full set of traumatic experiences, right? And so just knowing that if you're working in the immigration movement, if you're working right in a lot of these spaces where it's rooted in trauma that these folks are are not choosing to be in this space, it's, it is sort of put upon them having resources available to your volunteers, to your staff, to your supporters, and continuing to let them know that is it, that is important and that there are resources they can access in and of itself is sort of combating the sort of burnout mentality in the space. Listen, I thought this was a great interview. Brandon had a lot to add, a lot really talking about all the different sort of parts of a grassroots movement, but also this idea of knowing this is going to take a while and people can get burned out and how do you keep people engaged in a positive way? It was really an awesome conversation. Again, I also loved his conversations about intersectionality and the ways to engage other people in a coalition just felt like it was a really powerful interview. So thank you so much for tuning in today. Look forward to having you come back and listen to another episode. If you have questions or comments about grassroots movement building, check out our website at thecampaignworkshop.com. Our information can be found in the episode description. And be sure to like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned for next week's episode on movement building through media. And until next time, this is Martin Diego Garcia. And Joe Fold breaking down how to win a campaign. How to Win a Campaign is Joe Fold, Martin Diego Garcia, Elizabeth Rowe, Phoebe Retta, Evan Wilkerson, and Vienna O'Brien. Music by Daniel Pinto. Audio editing by Christopher Lang. Special thanks to the team at the Campaign Workshop. Please review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.